So you know today that we have at least two generations of, he says Epsteins, I say Epsteins. It's whatever you guys want to say. Either, so we'll either. Okay. But we actually have more than two generations. We have three generations. And so I turn the microphone over to Gavriel Gabi Epstein Epstein, who will do the first introductions of this afternoon. Gabi, it's all yours. Do a good job. is currently a professor of religion at Vassar College, where he has been teaching since 1992 and was the first director of Jewish studies at Vassar. He teaches courses on medieval Christianity, religion, arts, and politics, and Jewish texts and sources. He is a graduate of Oberlin College, received the PhD at Yale University, and did much of his graduate research at the Hebrew um, University in Jerusalem. He has written numerous articles and three books on various topics in visual and material culture produced by, for, and about Jews. His most recent book, The Medieval Haggadah, Art, Narrative, and Religious Imagination, Yale, 2011, was selected by the London Times Literary Supplement as one of the best books of 2011. During the 80s, my dad was director of the, he of the Hebrew Books and Manuscripts Division of Sotheby's Judaica Department and continues to serve as a consultant to various libraries and auction houses, museums, and private collectors throughout the world. Um, he travels widely um, speaking and teaching. And if I am very good, which I always am, I get to <laughs> join him on his journeys. And now, here Well, I'm really um, honored to be here, to be back, um, and to see all of you. Uh, it's amazing how many faces I remember uh, with great fondness. And I wanted to start out with a tremendous hakara satov, tremendous gratitude to Terry and Tony, really, for making this happen. I think the very first talk I gave in Orange County, I mentioned my dad, and uh, they said, well, we got to bring a guy in. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we're doing that, and uh, I want to thank, um, thank them for that. I also want to thank Marianne Malkoff, who has done an extraordinary job. I am one of the people who snapped at Marianne Malkoff, um, and in the spirit of Elul, I would like to say that I sincerely apologize, because 99.99% of whatever she does is, is above and beyond the call of duty. She has been uh, really an extraordinary um, guide and helper and resource for all of us crazy, uptight East Coasters um, <laughs> as we try to make our way to California. Um, so uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce you uh, to my father. Um, my dad, Yale Epstein, uh, whose name is Yoel Ben Moshe, uh, Ben Svi, Ben Moshe, Ben Moshe. Um, Yoel, born in New Haven, Connecticut, home of what university? Yoel. Correct. Um, in 1934, is, a, uh, is an artist whose lyrical and powerful landscape abstractions have captured the imagination of a generation. Um, his work is in many, many collections, both private and public, and, um, and uh, today we'd like to talk about uh, his uh, artistic and intellectual and religious and human journey. Uh, it's really telling for me. Uh, I sat once with my father at a performance of the play Red, which is about Mark Rothko, of course, who's one of his teachers, and I had to endure my father's mumbling under his breath the whole time about how this wasn't exactly the Rothko he knew uh, in language that was considerably uh, less uh, 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 sanguine. Um, but, uh, but that only proved to me and made me think that my father was really at the center of many, many things um, that happened in the 20th century in art, and that his personal odyssey is, I think, a very interesting one. And I am so, so blessed and fortunate to be able to have this conversation with him while he's still here, as opposed to about him when he isn't. So um, I'm, I'm very glad to invite uh, my father to the stage. Yeah. 
Now we're going to try to talk into the microphones here. Well, I want to thank all of you for uh, make, helping to make this happen for a very good reason. That to be my case. Yes, actually. Okay. For a very good reason. This is one of the very few times that I get to speak to him. <laughs> and he'll listen to me. <laughs> so I thank you for that opportunity. It really is an opportunity really to hang out a little. Yeah, which is really nice. Um, we're, on, we're on fairly good terms. Uh, we, come to, we come to blows occasionally. Uh, but, uh, but I think I could say that. You know, um, in a way you're all here under false premises. Um, because the advertisement or advertisement, your mileage may Epstein, Epstein vary, um, for this program states that we're going to talk about Jews, uh, Jewish art in the 20th century, a Jewish artist. And the truth is that my father, while a Jew and an artist, is not necessarily a Jewish artist, right? You won't find dancing Hasidim or menorahs in his work, right? And so um, the problematic relationship between Jews and art particularly abstract art, is something that we'll get to as we proceed. Um, it's not so simple as to say that Jews were prohibited from creating um, figurative art and therefore they all turn to abstract art and uh, therefore a, a Jewish artist in the 20th century must be a, an, abstract, an abstractionist or a painter of dancing Hasidim. My father is neither. Um, and we'll have to sort of unpack that as we go along, the sort of Jewish aspect. But Dad, I wanted to ask you, because we've talked about it over the years in, in various ways about your, your um, early... Um, life in New Haven, Connecticut, where you were born, as I said, in 1934, um, and uh, your transition to Lubavitch in Brooklyn in 1934, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, Lubavitch, which now is Chabad, is a, is a worldwide phenomenon, was a, a mere blip on the field of American Yiddishkeit, right? How did you end up, what was your life like in New Haven, and how did you end up in Lubavitch? It's a long story. Okay. <laughs> So go slow. <laughs> well, first, the family background. Uh, my grandfather, Reb Meir, was a uh, scholar and a chassid, a slonimah chassid, actually. The Lubavitcher part of my family is on my mother's side. Uh, they ended up, well, first, he left Europe, a shtetl, and uh, uncharacteristically at that time, uh, he came with his family. A lot of times people came first as a kind of mm. reconnaissance, you know, and then sent for the family. He came with four kids. Mm -hmm. And then another one was born here. Um, the second thing that would be different is that a good percentage of that generation were very happy to assimilate. Mm -hmm. uh, he and my mother's family did not. They ended up in New Haven ev evidently because... Uh, the Lower East Side was crowded. And whatever the social forces were, they kind of sent them to the New Haven, was it New Haven, Hartford, uh, Boston Hartford Railroad, whatever it was in those days, uh, to settle along the line. <laughs> he ended up in New Haven. Uh, you just picture this. I mean, he's kind of gutsy. He, he's, he's a scholar. And he ended up a house painter. Really? Uh-huh. So... And one of the reasons was it gave him a lot of freedom to quit early on Friday. Right. Uh, he also evidently had some kind of artistic bent because... Never told me that. No, I know. It's yeah. the first time. That's yeah. why I'm here. Okay. <laughs> you never talk to me. You know, like you, you know, like you never call. Right. Right. <laughs> you never talk... I'm a busy man, Dad. Okay. Cat Stevens. And well, all. remember that little. There was a little story that I used to tell Mark when he was a kid about uh, what is it, the the the, the Shlaimi the shul mouse? Yeah, Shlaimi the shul mouse. And you know, what, poor what is, is a Shlaimi? church mouse, right? So Shlaimi was a shul mouse. What does Shlaimi do? Do you remember? He binds books, right? Where did I get that from? I don't know. My grandfather. I had no. He idea. started with yeah. the sudurim of the old shuls were falling apart, there was no money to do anything. He figured out how to do it. He was a paper hanger, you know, a painter. And he ended up not only binding the books, but creating the end papers and doing stuff like that. Hmm. You didn't know, see? Hmm. That's why we came across America, to tell you that. So I have a Sefer Tehillim 
that came from your family that has wallpaper as end papers. Oh my god. And a little god. heart on the cover cut out of wallpaper. That would have been his, right? Maybe. Oh, very yeah. nice. Okay. So here he is uh, in New Haven. And as I said, he was with his beard. On Shabbat, he would wear black, you know, regalia and hat. And, uh, he uh, became the unofficial official rabbi of Broad Street Shul, mm -hmm. which was in the downtown section. And uh, we visited them every Shabbat, you know, okay. Uh, relevant to us here, we, we sensed that we were one of the few families in New Haven that was really orthodox. We knew that we were different. But uh, at the young age of, uh, you know, seven, eight, I was sent to the Hebrew school. They called it, my parents called it the Cheder. It was, uh, it was in a four-room brick building called the Jewish Center. Any relationship planetarily between the JCCs and that place is right. purely, you know, right. phantasmagoric. Right. I mean, it was three room, four rooms. One was a shul. Two were classrooms. It was cold in the winter. It was hot in the summer. Um, but this is where I began my Hebrew education, even though I was the only Orthodox person there. But uh -huh. I was too young to go to the yeshiva. Right. So, uh, Dr. Chanakovsky. Uh -huh. Chanakovsky. Okay. Was a teacher. He wore one of these high scholars yarmulkes, which had little black buttons in them. You can only see them in the Jewish museums now. Jewish museums now. Uh, he had what they called a kometzel. You know what a kometzel is? Anybody? Wow. You know a kometzel? No. A kometz is a is a point, right? So a he little, had this. Little. Uh -huh. He was a Lenin, a Lenin look-alike. With a big yarmulke. Right. <laughs> that was Dr. Chanakovsky. And what he had to contend with was, you know, uh, potential gangsters. Yeah, like you. And he's trying to fill their brain with, you know, with this stuff. And they're recalcitrant, of course. And they're there only doing time until their bar mitzvah. Right. So this is the atmosphere in which, you know, I, a, religious boy had to learn and it wasn't really yeah. what my parents intended to happen. They thought, well, you know, you're 11, 12 years old, we'll send her to the yeshiva. Mm -hmm. The yeshiva in New York meant mainly two yeshivas. Chaim Berlin and Torah Vadas was two different yeshivas. And Chaim Dunn, D-U-N-N, plain ordinary citizen, He's also a painter, a house painter. Right. He's uh, Irish, but he's Jewish. Really? And on Shabbos, he wears kind of funny stuff. He was the only Lubavitcher in New Haven. Huh. Now, this seems rather odd. When you go to Bangkok, you see Lubavitchers. Right. Chabad houses wherever you go. Orange County. Can you imagine a time? Can you imagine a time when there's one lone Chassid who has a Lubavitcher connection? As I said, my grandfather was a slonomer. He would go to their Fabrengans every three years, you know, every, every three times a year and take me along. All of that I don't want to get into, but. Uh, this was unique. Anyway, he befriended my father, long story short. My cousin, who was three years older than I was, was going to go to Lubavitch. A little unique at that time. I was only eight and a half. The half was very important. At that age, you know, a half is important. So, because my mother was ill and rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, they, they decided my cousin was coming, was going as influenced by Chaim Dunn, right. that I would go along. I was only eight and a half. Okay? And the cousin, to New York, tell you, to the Brooklyn. cousin, big mistake. The cousin, big mistake. He was, uh... <laughs> uh, the cousin, by the way, his name was Heine, but then changed it to Chaim 
to be more politically correct, <laughs> because later he became the rabbi for decades of the Truro Synagogue in, in New York. In, Newport, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Newport, right. yeah, yeah. We're all rabbis in my family, and cantors and all that. Yeah. So, uh, so I have sense. memories, so I have memories, you have to hear this, I have memories of the bench seat in this panel painter's truck. Mm -hmm. He did take off the ladders. Mm -hmm. So it was a truck bouncing along the Merritt Parkway because <laughs> the throughway didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. And we're on the bench, you know, there's Chaim, Don, and there's me, and there's my cousin. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget that, that image. Uh, anyway, when I settled in Lubavitch, I, I actually was the youngest out-of-towner. So the youngest yeah. out-of-towner in the very first class, call it, of Lubavitch when the Frida Karebbe came to America, right? Pretty much. Wow. Uh, we had a dormitory not far from 770, and you know, at that time, now you hear 770 and there's reproductions 770 of it Eastern all Parkway, right. which is what is reproduced all over the world, as my father just said. Oh, I remember... Yeah, the yeah. iconic building, right? Right. Now I remember 770, when the you know 80 and 90 year old people with the long beards don't even remember what it looked like before the renovations. I mean, I saw 770 when it was practically just purchased from some doctor, and it was it had a, you know a yard and a driveway, and now it's all shuls and you know it's, it's a you know it's tremendously a complex. It's yeah. a complex. Um, and the yeshiva was run by families that you probably their great grand their grandchildren are now known, you know, the Gararis and the Groners and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, but it was directed directly by what they call the Friedeker Rebbe. It means the earlier Rebbe because the, previous the, Rebbe, Rebbe. the previous Rebbe, because the last Lubavitcher Rebbe is the one people most are familiar with. Um, just a word about that, if I can, about that time. I mean, there's, there's a lot that I could really, I intend to write about it someday, because it, just like my early art education, didn't know it at the time that there were some historical things going on. Same thing here in Lubavitch. It's changed so much that, you know, people are kind of aware, even the, the Chabad people are vaguely aware from what they read or what they hear, and, right. I, and I, was, I was there. Right. Um, That's an important point, actually, that we're all living through history in our lives, and you know, at some point, it's worth perhaps putting it down because uh, otherwise, it's going to dissipate and nobody will know about it. So this is important. Yeah. Well, I, I was kind of a mascot because I was the youngest one, and there was uh, Reb Shmuel Levitin. He took me under his wing. But anyway, the the the, the Rebbe at that time, his his mother had passed away, and they were saying, "This is a little vignette, if you don't mind." No. Uh, saying Kaddish. It's important. He was saying Kaddish. And, and the, the secretary, Khadikov, would, would keep track of just 10 people who could go up. Oh, it's because he was ill and he was... Uh, he was ill, right. Right, so he was in his, confined to his room, so every morning... Well, he was in his office in a wheelchair. Right, so in, in every morning for Shacharis, for the morning prayer, only 10 people could fit exactly. in there. And, there and you had to wait online. Right? <laughs> no, you had to wait online, oh. even the old people. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about young boys. I'm talking about, you know, all, all right. the, the, the old guys were, were up Who there. Who came from Europe with him. Yeah, I mean, they still had to wait online, but I was always allowed to go up when I wanted to. Of course, I only went up a few times. You took up very little class. space, probably, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Because so. I was under the, the tutelage of this right. uh, Reb Shmuel. Uh, so the Rebbe, you know, was small enough that he, he knew who I was. What was the atmosphere in that room? I mean, how was... Oh, I have to tell you. Even before he got up to the room, you walked up the stairs, and uh, the door was open, or opened, and there was bookshelf-lined room, and there was an aroma, there was a smell. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, at eight, nine years old, yeah. that smelled like Kedusha, like holiness. Mm. To me, that, it was really just a combination of certain kinds of, uh, well, what the books were emanating, right, you know, right. and, and some spices perhaps that, you know, the Rebbitson was using in her cooking. Or something. Right. But to me, mm. oh, it was so potent. You know, they say that the sense of smell stays with you, with certain memories. <clears throat> I smelled that maybe once or twice 
you know, in 70 years, maybe somewhere in, you know, Bali or something. It was a combination of, but that smell stayed with me and it, it was interesting. But anyway, uh, as I became bar mitzvah, or I was getting to be bar mitzvah, it's an interesting little thing. Now, I, I don't believe in miracles and I'm not going to be one to uh, encourage people to do so. But something did happen. <laughs> something did happen. Okay. I go up to the Rebbe for my Bar Mitzvah blessing. And uh, he had a little speech impediment because he had uh, some heart condition or stroke rather. And uh, Khadikov, the secretary, would, would translate and tell you what to do. And it was a ritual. You had to walk in. And when you were finished, you walked out backwards. It was a whole thing. But uh, when it got to, as he asked me exactly when my bar mitzvah was, you know. The date of your bar the mitzvah. The date of my bar mitzvah. So as I told him the date, there was a palpable, palpable change of demeanor and mood hmm. in him. And he was, you know, and he kind of slouched. And, and it was for an uncomfortable period of time. Had a seizure or something? I thought maybe he did, yeah. but, you know, and, yeah. and, and Khadikov got a little concerned, and, and he got up, and then we continued. Okay? Thought nothing of it. Several years later, the answer to the question, what was the date of your birth, was Yud Shvat. The tenth of Shvat. Which, as Chabad people know, is now a major holiday, a major occasional day, because that's the day he died. The date that he died. Did I misinterpret? Was it, you know, what was going on? I don't know, but that stayed in my mind hmm. for almost 70 years. Right. Okay, wow. enough of the story. I'm tear tearing up. Uh, so you're there, you're eight I'm, years I'm old, there. now you're 13 years old, right? right? Now, th there is something that I asked Mark whether he thought it would be appropriate. I, I wanted to give you a sense of some small aspect, my personal aspect, of uh, experience there. Yeah. And I said, well, I could describe something that happened uh, that was really my, my first infraction, let's say, the mm. first time I ever had the guts to do something that was uncool. Religiously. Religiously, yeah. And uh, it's, what I did was, as us old people do, you know, we prepare because our sons are too busy, we want to let them know our lives. Uh, we, we prepare kind of memoirs. So a little excerpt of a story having to do with my experience in Lubavitch. With your permission, do you With mind? your permission, if I write, because if I just tell you the story, it, it will not have all the implications of that, that will give you a sense of what the experience was like. So may I? It's only a few pages. Um, this will give you some insights into it, into the life at that point. At the age of 14, living in Brooklyn at the prestigious Lubavitch Yeshiva, I was one-third of a small band of buddies who bonded. We called ourselves the Holy Three. <laughs> Emulating an older, much more respected yeshiva gang called the Holy Five. We were Zusha Konigsberg from Albany, Yanko Winter from Pittsburgh, uh, and me from New Haven. So we're three kids, even though we're studying in the yeshiva, doing all the right things, we're still kind of kids, you know. After our midday Sabbath meals at our respective hosts, we would go to different families. We would regroup at 770, the Brooklyn epicenter of Chabad, the Lavature organization, where we decided on how we would spend our afternoon. We had long since joined forces for kid activities, some approved, most disapproved by the rabbis and the more traditional unimaginative fellow students. For example, we participated as minor characters in midnight assaults on the kitchen stores. These were organized by older culprits 
led by the crafty and resourceful Yussel Chester, who you Yussel know. Yussel Chester, yeah. These raids were less motivated by genuine hunger than by a toxic contempt for Rosenblum, <laughs> the rather corpulent in, and in our young minds, sadistically mean manager of food operations at the school's dining hall. The look of confused rage on Rosenblum's face through most of the following day was actually a more satisfying reward for us than the chocolate pudding ingested gleefully in the shadowy darkness of the previous night. Our other antics included rampages on Halloween, a distinctly unhasidic but equal opportunity holiday for us. We would surreptitiously ring the doorbell, I'll never forget it, <laughs> repeatedly at the apartment of Rabbi Gorari, <laughs> one of the two son-in-laws, the much-feared overbearing principal of the elementary division of our school. A successful getaway was celebrated by hysterical gloating and vengeful flight, and then seamlessly rejoining the unsuspecting mainstream community <laughs> in study or prayer. A favorite illicit activity was going to the movies, this big movie house on Nostrand Avenue. It was believed by the rabbis that the devil himself resided in the corrupting celluloid imagery. After a few meager successes in actually seeing a film, we were forced to abandon the project. We were no match for the spying skills of the crafty informants who kept changing costumes and tactics in order to identify the evildoers such as we in their midst. Punishment for the guilty would consist of a tongue lashing and a severe lecture on morality followed by doing extra time in the study hall for several days or weeks. The Holy Three met on most Shabbos afternoons for more prosaic activities. We would explore the Brooklyn Museum, the Grand Army Plaza Library, the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, Prospect Park, etc. In inclement weather, we would go, we'd actually go to the study hall or the dorm for a combination of serious study and moderate havoc. <laughs> One delightful fall Sabbath day prior to the high holidays we made plans to walk along the center promenade of what was then a truly safe and beautiful Eastern Parkway. Our destination was Lincoln Terrace Park. I had thought long and made a deliberately provocative, very personal decision. I placed a small white handkerchief deep into my pocket, where its carefully folded outline would not reveal its presence. This simple act would have no significance whatsoever in the world at large, but in the context of my life at that time, it was indeed an event of cataclysmic proportions. Since the time of my earliest childhood, it was it was unquestionably forbidden and therefore unthinkable for a Jewish person, i.e. religious, to carry anything on one's person in a public space on the Sabbath. The reasons were steeped in complex concepts and issues discussed in well-documented ancient and revered legal sources of law and custom. The issue here is activity which would be appropriate for a true observance of the day of rest. The Sabbath must be concentrated, consecrated and devoted only to soulful, soulful activities and study and sleep and sleep. Whatever the rationale, my handkerchief carrying was clearly strictly forbidden. I had never seen anyone in my family or in the religious community carrying anything on Shabbos. I had personally never questioned this prohibition of inappropriate labor as perhaps in itself inappropriate, 
Yet strangely enough, without much vacillation, I, on that particular day, I simply committed myself to doing so by doing so. Part of me was kind of curious as to whether I would be struck down by a sudden bolt of lightning on direct orders from the Almighty, who while deeply involved in the great events of cause and effect in the universe, would also focus his microscopic attention to that five-inch piece of cloth concealed in my rear pocket on Shabbos. There is the belief that overt miraculous events no longer occur in our post-biblical era, right? You're the scholar. Yet, boils might begin to grow from the acne already <laughs> present on my face. Right. I also found myself looking up at the tall apartment buildings lining Eastern Parkway, expecting that part of a loose cornice would <laughs> come plummeting in my direction. I walked along several city blocks in normal conversation with my buddies. They, of course, had no clue mm. that a serious, repugnant transgression was going on in their presence. The afternoon went by without apparent consequence, except everything we did or saw was experienced by me through a veil of uneasy portent. I was kind of scared. Mm. When indeed would my luck finally give out and just deserts be upon me, visited upon me? At long last, I returned to the stillness of my room at the dormitory. The dormitory is actually a room in a uh, railroad uh, kind of apartment. You know, there's one room after the other on Kingston Avenue and Brooklyn and downstairs there was a bar, uh, somebody's, Ken's, uh, bar and grill, whatever it was, and then the neon lights are, you know, shining, you know, and I go there after this event. Not the bar, the dormitory. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Wasn't that quick? It was uh, ten years later. Right. Eight of us resided in the the apartment, and they were all away except for me, visiting with relatives of their own homes. So uh, they wouldn't be back till way beyond sunset. Hmm. So I was alone with my thoughts and my emotions right after this event. It somehow felt bittersweet. In the receding light of sunset, I finally allowed myself the mental space to ponder the, to ponder the significance of what I had done on that fateful walk. Sitting on the edge of my bed, my breathing deepened, and I felt as if I was bodiless. I had experienced something profound in that twilight that's difficult to put into words, but which remained deep inside of me for a lifetime. I didn't much dwell on this experience, its origins or its possible meanings, but instead as the days progressed I felt strongly and with total assurance as only you know a young child can feel that all was okay with me and the universe. In a universe of vast and complicated processes and issues the actions of a boy and his handkerchief were of little significance. I had taken this act of defiance of my tradition to bring me a feeling of peace with that tradition mm -hmm. in that I realized I could make personal judgments mm -hmm. and choices that were in fact open to me. I felt even more benignly embraced by that condition than I had before because I had options. Mm -hmm. I internalized this message but unfortunately couldn't share that insight with my family or my friends. Several decades of life processing passed before I began to understand something of what might have occurred that afternoon. Many, that many years ago, I, needed a, I had the need in my young life to experience a violation of the Sabbath laws, as interpreted by the rabbis, in order to in some way emerge on the other side with an understanding of God that was truer to my own essence. Mm -hmm. This was a relationship that I could comfortably live with all of my life. Now knowing I was going to, or thinking I might have read this, right. I felt I wanted to ask you something. Uh, you, wait, you're not allowed to ask me, it's uh, me asking, I'm in conversation about with this. 
Okay, I suppose you can. Last week, Mark uh, emailed me a uh, an article on which uh, Itmar Schwartz from uh, uh, Jerusalem yeah. sent you something about spirituality and the feeling he's teaching spirituality. Right. And in that email, he quotes, "You quoted that he quoted, who have whoever has not tasted the feeling of his soul mm -hmm. has never tasted." the true taste of life. And this is someone who's immersed in spirituality. Mm -hmm. I realize now that I tasted something. Mm. I could just right. taste it. That was like, wow. I was in a high spiritual state. That's intense. And then I had a question for you. Okay. There is a Kabbalistic teaching that a phenomenon must experience the opposite, its opposite in order to be fully realized. This is expressed in the concept that the soul needs to come down in order to go up. Right. So that has to the soul has to come to a corporal existence to understand its true nature when it goes back up. Right. So you need to go down in order to go up. This mm -hmm. is a Kabbalistic thing. Weren't there Kabbalistic masters mm -hmm. that occasionally would do something contrary to law? Ooh. I sprung this on you. Aha. For reasons such as this, this is a and might question. this not be of something I had to do? Okay, so so so, I mean, I don't need to justify what you did. I think it's a very profound story, and I've heard it. I must say that I've heard it in other versions over our history together. And the way I usually tell it is, my father says he walked out on Shabbos with a handkerchief in his pocket, and there was no Arab, so he decided there was no God. And I said, it's very interesting that that's the way my father tells the story. It's more interesting that he tells the story than whether it was a true story or not. But the, now that you read what you wrote, it's a very profound question. And the fact is that there were antinomian Kabbalists, like Shabtai Tzvi, right, who was the false messiah who, who deliberately uh, violated halacha, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth is, what you're talking about is your sort of incarnation as a post halachic Jew, your sort of realization that I think as the Ishbitzer Rebbe would have put it, and we said this on Shabbos, uh, some of us when we were together, that there's Torah Hashem, there's what God tells us we should do, and there's Ritzon Hashem, there's what God desires, and sometimes those things, although from people, Orthodox people would tell us that they're inseparable, and they're, that the Torah Hashem, God's halacha, God's law, God's way for us, God's Tao for us, always reflects Ritzon Hashem, that there are moments in time when certain, and, and believe me, in Hasidus, it's brought down that only certain very special people, usually rabbis, mm -hmm. right, can experience Know how world, to do it. Right, <laughs> not, not, not 12, eight-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. They can experience a world that goes beyond halacha. So for instance, the example we brought on Shabbos, and I, 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 I beg your pardon if you heard this already, is the Ishbitzer on Pinchas. So Pinchas, right, Pinchas um, uh, is, uh, is a zealot for God, and um, uh, prince of the tribe of Shimon and the princess of the Midianites are having sex in the entrance of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan. And Pinchas picks up a Romach and he impels them both through their genitals, right? Because this is the law of God, is that you can't do that, right? Yishbitzah says, and oh, and then God, in the next parak, God says, I give you my covenant of peace. So everybody says, yay, Pinchas, this is the way we should be, zealous, right? The Yishbitzah says, the Yishbitzah Rebbe is the third generation of Hasidus in the late 18th, early 19th century in Yishbitz in Poland. He says, you know what? Pinchas was wrong. Why was he wrong? Two rayas, two proofs. One, Moshe was there and he didn't say anything. Mm. Secondly, God gives Pinchas his covenant of peace. So what does this mean? He says, you know, Moshe understood, because Moshe had the gift of Nevoah prophecy, that there was something beyond the halacha, that these two people were designated for each other since the six days of creation, and moreover, that they had to do what they were doing in the place that they did it at that moment. And secondly, you don't give your covenant of peace to people who are chill. You only give your covenant of peace to people who need peace and stasis. So there's a recognition, at least in the third generation of Hasidus, that sometimes Ritzon Hashem, that is this bigger picture that you've tapped into 
here of what God may want or not want goes beyond halacha. But there was always, they were always very careful to say because they were nomian, they were tradition, not antinomian, they were always very careful to say that only the Rebbe knows what God's will is and only under very special circumstances and even then, chas God forbid, should the Rebbe walk out with a, with a handkerchief in his pocket or do anything else. So there's a philosophical understanding of what you're saying but what it does on a practical level is it creates people who deviate and from and who leave halacha. And so it's kept very tight to the chest. Does that sound Understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. But I think it's profound what you said. I mean, that's, I, you know, I, I, it's as, that is as profound a religious experience, I think, as the religious experience of, 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 of experiencing halachic life. You know, it's just a different way of tapping into, into God in a way. Yeah, it was strange. I didn't know what was happening, but at that time, in trying to remember the experience, I've never had anything like that before in my life. When people talk about spiritual, you know, realization, right? That was like a pure form, and here it happened on the tail end of my doing something wrong. And right. It was so right. Well, I mean, that's strange. really Igra Rama from the highest heights to the Birag Mikta to the lowest depths. But the question is, which is which in that case, <laughs> right? So heaven and earth can be reversed. So let me ask you, eventually you left um, the yeshiva, probably the way you tell it, as a result of this crisis of faith and other things that sort of opened up. No. No? How, why did you leave the yeshiva? And when did you do that? Well, uh, when I was in my, uh, I guess, junior year, senior year high school, I told you that my cousin Chaim, Chaim Shapiro, was uh, in Lubavitch with me, and there was this tall basketball player, uh, Sammy Simon, who I think you may have heard of. The Jews were all basketball they, players. They had started a... <laughs> Really? They had started a, a little career in their uh, summer vacations as busboys in the Catskills. You know, so they, it happened in the Catskills. <laughs> yeah, that's a part of our Jewish history that you know this generation doesn't know too much about. I mean, that was like the, the largest uh, uh, geographical area of, of, of Jewish recreation in, in, in existence. So they, I guess it all began when... Uh, they got me my first job as a busboy in uh, in the Catskills in Lock Sheldrake. It was uh, Schlemi Ehrenreich's Playrest Hotel and Resort, <laughs> <laughs> to put it in Schlemi's you know diction. Schlemi Ehrenreich. I mean. Uh, just like previously I said that the JCC has nothing to do with the Jewish Center in New Haven. I mean, <coughs> Schleimierenrechts compared to the, you know, Browns and Kutchers and Grossingers and, you know, the Concord. It's like, right. like wow. It's yeah, not it's the something same very universe. different, right? So off the charts on this side <laughs> in terms of quality of accommodations, etc. So I worked there. I have uh, some memories of that that might be kind of amusing. We should, you could give a couple, but we have to move on actually to your art career because we're about halfway through the, whole, the presentation. Oh, I can't so. tell about Shlomi. Do you want to hear about Shlomi? Maybe they want to have a, who wants to hear about Shlomi? A little bit about Shlomi? Okay, give them a little bit about Okay, Shlomi. all the hotels had the, uh, the Stardust Room and the, this room and the uh, Celebrity Room and all that. Shlomi when it came Saturday night and he was announcing the talent, the talent was itinerant talent. They would come from different places, you know, three or four hotels at one time. Uh, and he'd, he'd, he'd make the announcement like, uh, Ron, and Ro Ron and Roda and their romantic tango <laughs> is going to take place, you know where? Where? The casino room. <laughs> he had a casino. He knew the fancy hotels called it the Rainbow Room, so his was the Katsina Room. The Katsina Room. Uh -huh. Do I have time to tell about his? Uh, his, his no, you don't. Actually. Okay, you okay, go, okay. You go on. Transition to YU. So I went to Yeshiva University after that, much, much to the chagrin of my peers and uh, family. Well, my family agreed, but uh, to go to Yeshiva University from where I was was you were going down the path, man. Right. You were okay. leaving so, the derech. Yeah, but I. The, the people who I, who, re, who 
were in my past in Lubavitch, who right. I want to just mention, that were, you know, now the names that you hear of their grandchildren and right. children who are running Chabad places or, 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 or chief rabbis somewhere um, or in other fields, uh, I knew their grandfathers. Right. You know, so that uh, someone who was to me, you know, hey, Marlo is, was the Rav. He was the one who Paskin the Shilas, who told you what was. And uh, the Lazar family, the Lazar, you know. Was, Barrow Lazar. Uh, Barrow Lazar was in Rome. His son yeah. is in Moscow, which, yeah. uh, you know, he's yeah. a Moscow. He's a Putin friend. And the whole <laughs> Machlekes, the whole thing with, uh, with, with the rabbi there. Anyway, so, and on the other side, my classmates were, you know, Shlomo Karlbach, Zalman Zetler, who was taking care of the dormitory, you know, right. room 403. He'd wake me up in the morning for, right. for Nagelwasser and all that. So I, I wanted to just, you know, get that there is a lot of material there. Okay. Um, when I was, so my transition, I was at YU, and uh, another waiter there, a, a waiter in a higher level hotel that mm -hmm. I worked in, uh, his name was Art Mandelbaum, mm -hmm. uh, told me about Brooklyn College and their art department, mm -hmm. which I always was interested in art. And he kind of enticed me, he says, come over for, you know, Shabbat, and we'll. We'll visit the college. So he was still Shama Shabbos then, basically. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, Mandelbaum mean anything to you? Mandelbaum. Right, his uncle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and at the Shabbat. Who's his uncle? The Mandelbaum, the Mandelbaum gate, gate. And the whole... The whole um, yeah. And I went for Shabbat, and there's this guy with epilepsy, and his, was the was a general. Right. The first you know, Israeli general sitting at this table. A, anyway, so I entered a Brooklyn College, Little did I know more than it had a reputation, right. uh, and there was a reason for the reputation, and that uh, is that previous previous several years, many of the um, refugees who were artists who came as refugees to New York ended up because of friendships and connections at the city colleges, and among them the highest levels came to Brooklyn College. And that's when I, uh, I uh, attended there. And at the time, I had no idea that some of the experiences I had there were, and with people were things that people write books about. Hmm. And so if you look in your supporting materials, we're going to... Um, Can you do anything on this? Beginning with um, uh, image, images um, uh, 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 number one in a second. I just want you to keep your fingers there. So let me just ask you, um, Dad, when you made this transition, which obviously you were still Shabbos Shabbos when you met Art Mandelbaum, and you're about in your life story to meet um, Ed Reinhardt and Mark Rothko and all those people, um, what remained or remains of your Yiddishkeit? We have 50 copies for the 70 people that okay. are here. Can people so share they, these with the people could, next to each other? And you can, if we have them. Oh, there. Okay. Okay. All right. We're not. We're not going there yet. Right. So hold, just hold them close. Hold them close. I want to answer this this right. question. What, okay. what remains? What so, remains? So what? What remains of my Yiddishkeit? An interesting question. I would say the usual things like I fell. <laughs> you fell. Okay. I fell at the achievements of my progeny. Uh huh. Okay. That's, that's Somebody does. Yiddish. That's good. Yeah. Um, I subscribe to the forwards <laughs> and moment. I have some food restrictions. Uh, I have this strange connection with numbers that when I'm at the gym, I'll do 18 push-ups, uh, etc. So that's, that's part of it. But what is more unexpected, I think, and, more, and interesting is that uh, a few other things that I think would, would be of interest. I only am comfortable in orthodox shuls. I like to, if I'm going to pray, I want to be in an atmosphere in which people know what they're saying, why they're saying it, and know the history of it. And I fully respect, and I know all of you go to other kinds of synagogues, that's fine. If it's a large synagogue and 
people are not davening with kavana. You want to explain what that is? With intention, with, with uh, uh, connection. I personally am, am not comfortable. In fact, in Woodstock, I started going for the high holidays to the, it's, it's a very Woodstocky shul, and yet because of the size and the people there, I chose the following year and years after to just spend Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in the woods near my, on my property. You know, and it's just a meditative personal davening. So that is what's remained, I believe. Uh, another thing, it was this big thing here. I'll describe it this way. I'm, on a, I'm in the gym on a step machine. And I'm listening to my iPod. I'm listening to my iPod. Eyes closed, enjoying it. I feel a tap on my hand. It's my friend. He says something like, whatever you're grooving to, Yale, I want some of that. <laughs> Evidently, I was like, you know what it was? Your birthday present a couple of years ago. Which was? I forget. You forget? Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Yussel Rosenblatt. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm listening to the Hashki Venu, uh -huh. and I'm really, really digging. I mean, to me, Chazanut as well as Hasidic, you know, singing. Uh, which uh, which is the Hashkiveinu? I want to know if it rocks. Hashkiveinu. I don't want to get too okay. right. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I have this relationship with, with that kind of music that's really transformative. It stayed with me. I mean, right. I listen to that stuff when I'm painting in the studio. And you were a Hazan for many years in Orthodox shuls, well, even though you weren't Orthodox, right? Well, yeah, was, okay, let's not go into that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would say I feel like a, I have dual citizenship. That, oh, yeah, that I have this background knowledge of the, the not only Hasidic, but, but ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox ways of thinking, seeing, being, uh, speaking. I, it's such diversity. Yeah. I mean, I understand the difference between, everybody does, between the different kippahs that people right. wear, but what about the white socks and the shoes, which, which the Kloisenberger and the Satmer. I mean, I, I, I get it. I understand to a great degree how, I wouldn't even say those people, I would say my people, they feel, right. still feel that way. The, the whole, the aesthetic, uh -huh. what, they, the, what the houses look like, uh -huh. how they talk. Um, I'll give you an example. Do any of you know B&H uh, uh, Electronics? In New Manhattan, York? have you heard of it? You know, okay. So, yes. To, to yes. good. Yes. So, Best camera store. There you go. Now, most people have just heard it online and don't know that B&H consists yeah. of a large building and all the people behind the counter right. are all wearing, there are certain kind of groups, groupings, right. wearing certain kinds of Close. University, sty you know, universal style. They're all that way. Right. And everybody. Chasidish own B and H is for Baruch Hashem. Thank oh. God. Oh, you right. know that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, I didn't know it's. Baruch I was going Hashem. to just. I, I was just going to say that. I was going. I was going to test him to see if he knew what B and H was. But Baruch anyway, Hashem, I know what B and H is. Okay. So now you know something interesting. Nobody, just like Mark, knew that B and H which the whole world, every ethnic group, they get their cameras from there. No B&H electronics. He knows because he knows. And I know that else as well. But there's some things that I know when I go in there. So everyone behind, everyone behind the counter is Hasidic and everybody on this side of the counter is New York. <laughs> Tall, small, black, white, you know, speaking Spanish and all that. And I'm waiting online as you always do when you go on person, in person. And I'm looking at one guy talking to another, and uh, it, it's in a Hungarian-inflected Yiddish, which is to my ear like music. I know it very well. I will slow it down to see if you could understand it. What is he saying? Chaim. Okay, we know what Chaim is. Or Shloima. Shloima. Shloima is better. Okay. Sammy, Schleimer, Gibaher, the Yamake from Nikon, 
Dreisechzig. Bring me the The yarmulke. The yarmulke. For the, nobody on this side of the line knew what that was about. I get their sense of humor. What is it? The lens cover. He got it. The lens cover. The nine, my country. Right, right. So, you know, it's a small thing, right. but when I walk down the street and I'm following a couple and I hear them talking to each other, I go to a wedding and I'm hearing what, what guys say. I was right. at the airport just, you know, a couple of days ago yeah. and I'm hearing what a guy talk to one of the, uh, the officials at the airport. So, I, so I, you, have, you, have both, you have one foot in each of those worlds, yep. which, is, uh, which is something that I think I inherited from you and I'm very proud uh -huh. to have inherited from you. I think we need to move on now okay. to talk about your experiences at Brooklyn College because okay. we're, we're running out of time. Well, there isn't that much to say, except let's, uh, let's, let's look, look at, at our, our pictures. Okay. okay. Oh, look so at this picture of Terry and... T oh, this is so sweet at the very beginning. This is very nice. Okay. So that's the first page. <laughs> and then the second page is about... Okay. Now you're up to Yale Epstein supporting um, materials. Okay. And we'll talk about okay. uh, I'll, I'll your experiences. Okay. I'll talk to you about it. Yeah. First thing is you... you would probably understand if I didn't come out and say it. I was terribly deficient in my art education. No art in elementary school. No art in high school. No art in junior high school. YU, I had a, Yeshiva University, I had an art history course. I mean, I had a lot to catch up. So in the five years from 1953 to 1959, it was intense. Not only did I go to Brooklyn College, but I went to Art Students League, where I studied anatomy with Robert Beverly Hale, if anybody knows that. I mean, just drawing the nudes, as we say, yes. Uh, he, he wrote the books on anatomy, and then uh, Edwin Dickinson at the Brooklyn Museum. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and then I, I also went, turned out it was the last year, during the summer of 1958 to Provincetown, the last class that Hans Hoffman taught. Hmm. So I, I lived in that era in which, at least in, in my group, my society, art was everywhere. Hmm. And the personages, the people whose names you know, were just there, you know? So you learn, you learn traditional um, rendering and uh, and life drawing, and then, but you I learned, also... I, I also learned uh, architecture and drafting. Yeah. I learned from Stamos Papadaki, who was one of the, the, the top architects. Mm -hmm. So there was a traditional training. Uh, I, I have to tell you, though, how I got to Brooklyn College, that, uh, that uh, well, let me skip that part. Okay. It take too long. Okay, so I'm there. I, the last year that, it uh, turns out, I, a lot of last years, uh, Mark Rothko was my painting teacher, and I was oh. not up to understanding, you know, what he was about. Uh, all I knew was that he spent the least amount of time that he could with us, <laughs> and he spent the most amount of time smoking in the uh, in the teacher's lounge, and not the lounge, the office. Uh, I did, as I'll as I'll describe in a moment. I, I did see what I did get from him and from another person, Ad Reinhardt, if you understand. If you knew them. Ad Reinhardt is depicted here as uh, number one. Okay, so let's go to number let's let's go to number one. The major I I selected from all these people just three for the purposes of this talk, because these three were major influences not only on my art, but on the period. They capsulized the general aesthetic of the fifties and the sixties. So first, Ad Reinhardt. If you see the picture, you got it there. Number one. Uh, you notice he, he looks pretty traditional. He's not wearing, you know, holy jeans or anything. He was very uh, conservative in his dress, but radical in his ideas, which I will try to just pick one core idea for you because this isn't an art history lesson, really. He had a brilliant mind and he had a very wry humor. You know that he, uh, you know, he, he, he drew at, uh, cartoons that were very, very right. effective if you want to look up online, they're just amazing. Um, he had done, for that period of time, he had done a lot of travel. It wasn't as easy to travel then as now. And he spoke to us about places that, you know, were just in my dreams for so many years that Deborah and I, my wife's in the front row here, 
went to Angkor Wat a few years ago because of him. He talked about, about that kind of art. And he uh, studied at Columbia with Zen masters and was a, was a friend of, uh, uh, what is that monk? Uh, what is his Merton? Name? Merton, Thomas Merton. He was his best friend for many years. 